Welcome to the Darkest Page Podcast. Tonight's tale is a faraway melody by Mary Wilkins Freeman. The clothesline was wound securely around the trunks of four gnarled, crooked old apple trees, which stood promiscuously about the yard back of the cottage. It was tree-blossoming time, but these were too aged and sapless to blossom freely, and there was only a white bough here and there shaking itself triumphantly from among the rest, which had only their new green leaves. There was a branch occasionally which had not even these, but pierced the tender green and the flossy white in hard, grey nakedness. All over the yard the grass was young and green and short, and had not yet gotten any feathery heads. Once in a while there was a dandelion set closely down among it. The cottage was low, of a dark red colour, with white facings around the windows which had no blinds, only green paper curtains. The back door was in the centre of the house, and opened directly into the green yard, with hardly a pretense of a step, only a flat oval stone before it. Through this door, stepping cautiously on the stone, came presently two tall, lank women in chocolate-coloured calico gowns, with a basket of clothes between them. They set the basket underneath the line on the grass, with a little clothespin bag beside it, and then proceeded methodically to hang out the clothes. Everything of a kind went together, and the best things on the outside line, which could be seen from the street in front of the cottage. The two women were curiously alike. They were about the same height, and moved in the same way, even their faces were so similar in feature and expression that it might have been a difficult matter to distinguish between them. All the difference, and that would have been scarcely apparent to an ordinary observer, was a difference of degree, if it might be so expressed. In one face the features were both bolder and sharper in outline, the eyes were a trifle larger and brighter, and the whole expression more animated and decided than in the other. One woman's scanty drab hair was a shade darker than the other's, and the negative fairness of complexion, which generally accompanies drab hair, was in one relieved by a slight tinge of warm red on the cheeks. This slightly intensified woman had been commonly considered the more attractive of the two, although in reality there was very little to choose between the personal appearance of these twin sisters, Priscilla and Mary Brown. They moved about the clothesline, pinning the sweet white linen on securely, their thick, white stockinged ankles showing beneath their limp calicos as they stepped, and their large feet in cloth slippers flattening down the short, green grass. Their sleeves were rolled up, displaying their long, thin, 
muscular arms, which were sharply pointed at the elbows. They were homely women. They were fifty and over now, but they never could have been pretty in their teens. Their features were too irredeemably irregular for that. No youthful freshness of complexion or expression could have possibly done away with the impression that they gave. Their plainness had probably only been enhanced by the contrast, and these women, to people generally, seemed better looking than when they were young. There was an honesty and patience in both faces that showed all the plainer for their homeliness. One, the sister with the dark hair, moved a little quicker than the other, and lifted the wet clothes from the basket to the line more frequently. She was the first to speak, too, after they had been hanging out the clothes for some time in silence. She stopped as she did so, with a wet pillowcase in her hand, and looked up reflectively at the flowering apple boughs overhead, and the blue sky showing between, while the sweet spring wind ruffled her scanty hair a little. I wonder, Mary, she said, if it would seem so very queer to die a morning like this, say, don't you believe there's apple branches a-hanging over them walls made out of precious stones? Like these. Only there ain't any dead limbs among em. And they're all covered with the flowers. And I wonder if it would seem such an awful change to go from this air into the air of the new Jerusalem. Just then a robin, hidden somewhere in the trees, began to sing. I suppose, she went on, that there's angels instead of robins, though... And they don't roost up in the trees to sing, but stand on the ground, with lilies growing round their feet, maybe up to their knees, or on the gold stones in the street, and play on their harps to go with the singing. The other sister gave a scared, awed look at her. La, don't talk that way, sister, she said. What's got into you lately? You make me crawl all over talking so much about dying. You feel well, don't you? La, yes replied the other, laughing and picking up a clothespin for her pillowcase. I feel well enough, and I don't know what's got me to talking so much about dying lately, or thinking about it. I guess it's the spring weather. Perhaps flowers growing make anybody think of wings sprouting kinda naturally. I won't talk so much about it if it bothers you, and I don't know, but it's sorta natural it should. Did you get the potatoes before we came out, sister? With an awkward and kindly effort to change the subject. No replied the other, stooping over the clothes basket. There was such a film of tears in her dull blue eyes that she could not distinguish one article from another. Well, I guess you'd better go in and get them then. They ain't worth anything this time of year unless they soak a while, and I'll finish hanging out the clothes while you do it. Well, perhaps I'd better, the other woman replied, straightening herself up from the clothes basket. Then she went into the house without another word, but down in the damp cellar a minute later, she sobbed over the potato barrel as if her heart would break. Her sister's remarks had filled her with a vague apprehension and grief which she could not throw off, and there was something a little singular about it. Both these women had always been of a deeply religious cast of mind. They had studied the Bible faithfully, if not understandingly, and their religion had strong tinctured their daily life. They knew almost as much about the Old Testament prophets as they did about their neighbours, and that was saying a good deal about two single women in a New England country town. Still, this religious element in their natures could hardly have been termed spirituality. It deviated from that as much as anything of religion, which is in one way spirituality itself, 
could. Both sisters were eminently practical in all affairs of life, down to their very dreams, and Priscilla especially so. She had dealt in religion with the bare facts of sin and repentance, future punishment and reward. She had dwelt very little, probably, upon the poetic splendours of the Eternal City, and talked about them still less. Indeed, she had always been reticent about her religious convictions, and had said very little about them even to her sister. The two women, with God in their thoughts every moment, seldom had spoken his name to each other, for Priscilla to talk in the strain that she had today, and for a week or two previous, off and on, was, from its extreme deviation from her usual custom, certainly startling. Poor Mary, sobbing over the potato barrel, thought it was a sign of approaching death. She had a few superstitious-like grafts upon her practical, commonplace character. She wiped her eyes finally, and went upstairs with her tin basin of potatoes, which were carefully washed and put to soak by the time her sister came in with the empty basket. At twelve exactly the two sat down to dinner in the clean kitchen, which was one of the two rooms the cottage boasted. The narrow entry ran from the front door to the back. On one side was the kitchen and living room, on the other the room where the sisters slept. There were two small unfurnished lofts overhead, reached by a stepladder through a little scuttle in the entry ceiling, and that was all. The sisters had earned the cottage and paid for it years before by working as tailoresses. They had, besides, quite a snug little sum in the bank, which they had saved out of their hard earnings. There was no need for Priscilla and Mary to work so hard, people said, but work hard they did, and work hard they would as long as they lived. The mere habit of work had become as necessary to them as breathing. Just as soon as they had finished their meal and cleared away the dishes, they put on some clean starched purple prints, which were their afternoon dresses, and seated themselves with their work at the two front windows. The house faced southwest, so the sunlight streamed through both. It was a very warm day for the season, and the windows were open. Close to them in the yard outside stood great clumps of lilac bushes. They grew on the other side of the front door too, a little later, the low cottage would look half buried in them. The shadows of their leaves made a dancing network over the freshly washed yellow floor. The two sisters sat there and sewed on some coarse vests all the afternoon. Neither made a remark often. The room, with its glossy little cooking stove, its eight-day clock on the mantel, its chintz-cushioned rocking chairs and the dancing shadows of the lilac leaves on its yellow floor, looked pleasant and peaceful. Just before six o'clock, a neighbour dropped in with her cream pitcher to borrow some milk for tea, and she sat down for a minute's chat after she had got it filled. They had been talking a few moments on neighbourhood topics, when all of a sudden Priscilla let her work fall and raised her hand. Hush! whispered she. The other two stopped talking and listened, staring at her wonderingly, but they could hear nothing. Why, what is it, Miss Priscilla? asked the neighbour with round blue eyes. She was a pretty young thing, who had not been married long. Hush, don't speak. Don't you hear that beautiful music? Her ear was inclined towards the open window, her hand still raised warningly, and her eyes fixed on the opposite wall beyond them. Mary turned visible paler than her usual dull paleness and shuddered. 
I don't hear any music, she said. Do you, Miss Moore? No, replied the caller, her simple little face beginning to put on a scared look from a vague sense of a mystery that she could not fathom. Mary Brown rose and went to the door and looked eagerly up and down the street. There ain't no organ man in sight anywhere, she said, returning. And I can't hear any music. And Miss Moore can't have, we've both sharp enough of hearing. You're just imagining it, sister. I never imagined anything in my life, returned the other. And it ain't likely I'm going to begin now. It's the beautifulest music. It comes from over the orchard there. Can't you hear it? But it seems to me it's growing a little fainter now. I guess it's moving off, perhaps. Mary Brown set her lips hard. The grief and anxiety she had felt lately turned suddenly to unreasoning anger against the cause of it. Through her very love she fired with quick wrath at the beloved object. I guess it must be moving off. With a laugh which had an unpleasant ring in it. After the neighbour had gone, however, she said more, standing before her sister with her arms folded squarely across her bosom. Now, Priscilla Brown, she exclaimed, I think it's about time to put a stop to this. I've heard enough of it. What do you suppose Miss Moore thought of you? Next thing it'll be all over the town that you're getting spiritual notions. Today it's music that no one else can hear, and yesterday you smell roses, and there ain't one in blossom this time of year, and all the time you're talking about dying. For my part, I don't see why you ain't as likely to live as I am. You're uncommonly hearty on victuals. You ate a pretty good dinner today for a dying person. I didn't say I was going to die, replied Priscilla meekly. The two sisters seemed suddenly to have changed natures. And I'll try not to talk so, if it plagues you. I told you I wouldn't this morning, but the music kind of took me by surprise like, and I thought maybe you and Miss Moore could hear it. I can just hear it a little bit now like the dying away of a bell. There you go again, cried the other sharply. Do for mercy's sake stop, Priscilla. There ain't no music. Well, I won't talk any more about it, she answered patiently, and she rose and began settling the table for tea, while Mary sat down and resumed her sewing, drawing the thread through the cloth with quick, uneven jerks. That night, the pretty girl neighbour was aroused from her first sleep by a distressed voice at her bedroom window crying, Miss Moore! Miss Moore! She spoke to her husband, who opened the window. Who's wanted? he asked, peering out into the darkness. Priscilla's sick, moaned the distressed voice. Awful sick! She's fainted, and I can't bring her to! Go for the doctor! Quick! 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 The voice ended in a shriek on the last word, and the speaker turned and ran back to the cottage, where, on the bed lay a pale, gaunt woman, who had not stirred since she left it. Immovable through all her sister's agony, she lay there, her features shaping themselves out more and more from the shadows, the bedclothes that covered her limbs taking on an awful rigidity. She must have died in her sleep, the doctor said when he came, without a struggle. When Mary Brown really understood that her sister was dead, she left her to the kindly ministrations of the good women who are always ready at such times in a country place, and went and sat by the kitchen window in the chair which her sister had occupied that afternoon. There the women found her when the last offices had been done for the dead. 
come home with me tonight, one said. Miss Green will stay with her. With a turn of the head towards the opposite room and an emphasis on the pronoun which distinguished it at once from one applied to a living person. No, said Miss Brown. I am going to sit here and listen. She had the window wide open, leaning her head out into the chilly night air. The women looked at each other. One tapped her head, another nodded hers. Poor thing, said a third. You see, went on Mary Brown, still speaking with her head leaned out of the window. I was cross with her this afternoon because she talked about hearing music. I was cross and spoke up sharp to her because I loved her, but I don't think she knew. I didn't want to think she was going to die, but she was, and she heard the music, it was true. And now I'm going to sit here and listen till I hear it too, and then I'll know she ain't laid up what I said again her, and that I'm going to die too. Next day, they found it impossible to reason with her. There she sat till morning, with a pitying woman beside her, listening all in vain for unearthly melody. Next day they sent for a widowed niece of the sisters, who came at once, bringing her little boy with her. She was a kindly young woman, who took up her abode in a little cottage, and did the best she could for her poor aunt, who, it soon became evident, would never be quite herself again. There she would sit at the kitchen window, and listen day after day, she took a great fancy to her niece's little boy, and used often to hold him in her lap as she sat there. Once in a while she would ask him if he heard any music. An innocent little thing like him might hear quicker than a hard, unbelieving old woman like me, she told his mother once. She lived for nearly a year after her sister died. It was evident that she failed gradually and surely, though there was no apparent disease. It seemed to trouble her exceedingly that she never heard the music she listened for. She had an idea that she could not die unless she did, and her whole soul seemed filled with longing to join her beloved twin sister and be assured of her forgiveness. This sister love was all she had ever felt beside her love of God in any strong degree. All the passion of devotion of which this homely, commonplace woman was capable was centred in that, and the unsatisfied strength of it was killing her. The weaker she grew, the more earnest she listened. She was too feeble to sit up, but she would not consent to lie in bed, and made them bolster her up with pillows in a rocking chair by the window. At last she died, in the spring, a week or two before her sister had the preceding year. The season was a little more advanced this year, and the apple trees were blossomed out further than they were then. She died about ten o'clock in the morning, the day before her niece had been called into the room by a shrill cry of rapture from her. I heard it! I've heard it! she cried, a faint sound of music, like the dying away of a bell. Thank you for listening to the Darkest Page podcast. This has been A Faraway Melody by Mary Wilkins Freeman. This episode was made with the support of the librarians of the Darkest Page podcast, Alex Smith and Tonky. To see how you can support the podcast, please visit patreon.com forward slash the darkest page. I have been your host, 
and I wish you pleasant dreams.